Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. Would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 5? We'll be in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. As you're turning there, let me briefly explain uh, where we're headed for the next two weeks. Uh, We've been in the book of Acts for some time now, uh, but for the next two weeks, we're going to pause and actually do a two-part sermon series in Romans chapter 5. And uh, while we didn't initially intend for this, uh, where we left off in the book of Acts is actually a great segue into today's chapter. Uh, We heard about Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentiles, and here in Romans chapter 5 is one of the most foundational presentations of Paul's gospel that he preached from town to town. So we'll be in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 14 today. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll be in 5, 15 through 21. I'm going to read the entire section from 5, 12 down to 21 so that the whole sweep of the text is in our minds. But we'll just look at verses 12 through 14 today. Okay, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are the words of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, give us more light to understand the word that you've given us. Help us to know what your word says, to treasure what is true, and to correct in us what needs correcting. May we feel the eternal weight hanging on each one of Paul's words. Save those in here heading for hell and continue to save and strengthen those in here heading for glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, the culture doesn't agree on much, but I suspect if I were to go into the heart of Brookside this morning 
and pick a person at random, I think that they would probably agree with me that something is not right in our world. I mean, how can you disagree with that when we are bombarded from all sides with the reality that our world is suffocating under the weight of tragedy after tragedy, and tragedies don't happen in a world where all is right. We are surrounded by sorrows, and they scream at us that we live in a fallen world. Now, I also suspect that while the average person off the Brookside streets would agree with me that something's not right, they probably would not then agree with me on why the world is not right or what would put it right. So the challenge then of the Christian in our age is not convincing the unbeliever that the world is broken. I think that they have an innate sense about that. The challenge is convincing them of Scripture's diagnosis and treatment. The world is not right because of our sin. And the only treatment for the disease is the free gift of righteousness offered only in Jesus Christ. Apart from the light of the gospel, the best that natural man can do outside of Christ is merely affirm the symptoms of sin and propose solutions to temporarily numb the pain. But they cannot accurately diagnose its cause or find a lasting solution. This morning we hear from the spiritual doctor, the Apostle Paul, who, like a good physician, gets at the root the foundation of the disease, so that he can then apply the curing medicine of the gospel. He gets at the heart of humanity's biggest problem by asking three questions which will guide our sermon here today. The first question is, how did sin and death enter the world? Verse 12. The second question is, how do we know sin spreads to all mankind? Verses 13 through 14a. And third, who will save us from death's reign? Verses 14b. So we'll begin with question one where we'll spend the bulk of our time. How did sin and death enter the world? Well, a few verses earlier, I know we're hopping right into the book of Romans, which is a dangerous thing to do. Paul has announced the peace that we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And right before verse 12, if you look, he says that we have now received reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the natural follow-up question then, and the whole reason our section of text is here, is why do we need to be reconciled to God in the first place? And to answer this, Paul backs up and explains humanity's biggest problem. The biggest problem facing humanity is that God has sentenced every person to ever walk the face of the earth to condemnation, to death, and to everlasting torment apart from him for rebelling against him, their creator and their sustainer. Look midway through verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass, Adam's trespass, brought condemnation. It was not always this way. The first humans ever created by God, Adam and Eve, whom all of humanity descends from as sons and daughters, if, if a perfect line of record could be kept, 
And you could go on Ancestry.com, just back and back and back and back and back to your farthest great-grandparents. They would be Adam and Eve. They were created in uprightness, in the image of God. Totally holy, without sin, and in perfect relationship with God himself. And the law of God was given to them. And it was written upon their hearts. And unlike us, they were actually able to keep God's law. And God also gave them another commandment in order to test Adam. To not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in this commandment was held forth both the promise of blessing and the prospect of curse. If Adam would have kept the commandment, he would have continued and even bettered his state in everlasting life forever with God, totally happy, totally free from any sin, and he would expand the Garden of Eden out over the entire earth. But if Adam ate of the tree, he and all his children after him would be condemned to die physically and spiritually and separated from life with God forever unless God acts to reconcile. And so Adam, as the head and the representative before God for all the human race, chose willingly to eat of the tree. And when he did, his eyes were for the first time open to good and to evil, to experience, to taste for himself the sweet poison of evil. You see, it wasn't just a minor hiccup of eating some fruit that was off limits. No, but in the act of eating, he chose to throw off God's rightful rule over his creation, become his own God, and decide for himself what was right and what was wrong. And in that moment, in Genesis 3, human nature was never the same. Once holy was now defiled, once pure now corrupted. The reason that you and I sin today and cannot do what God requires of us goes back to this moment when Adam fell. If you look down at your Bibles at verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death spread to all men because all sinned. And as Adam's children, our human nature is now unable to do any good and it's actually inclined to only do evil. His sentence of condemnation is now counted towards us. Why? Because he stood in the place of all humanity during his testing as the representative for mankind before God. What he did affects who we are. It's kind of like the David and Goliath story, or if you've seen the classic movie Troy with Brad Pitt, where two armies are lined up on the battlefield and they each send out a champion And they fight in the middle, and whoever wins that fight affects the outcome for everybody else. That's essentially what you have here. When Adam fell, humanity fell. And this is our biggest problem. Now, you might ask yourself then, how is it fair that what another person did a thousand years ago in a situation radically different from mine affects the outcome of my life? Is the game, like, rigged against me before I even begin? And it's a totally understandable question. And I don't really have an easy answer for it. But maybe two things to get our arms around that objection. First, 
God has designed redemptive history in such a way that bewilders the logic and the wisdom of man in order to show that the power of God is shown in salvation. And actually, I think hiding behind this question of fairness can actually be pride because if we think that if we were in Adam's shoes, we would have done differently. And perhaps blasphemy because we question God's justice and the wisdom of how he set up the world. And second, just be careful with the objection. I understand, I understand the objection, but be careful because by the same logic Paul uses to show our condemnation in Adam, he also, a few verses later, shows our justification in Christ. If by one man we fall, it's by another that we rise. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We fall by no choice of our own, and we rise in another by no merit of our own. I mean, how is it fair, humanly speaking, that the only perfect man who never sinned took the penalty of my sin and was crushed for it in my place so that I might be considered righteous before God? It's why salvation is not, nor ever could be, be a good person and try your best and God will accept you. Or more subtle, believe the gospel And add a little bit of works in as well, and God will accept you. Both of these are errors and are an actual denial of the gospel itself. We totally now lack the ability to be a good person, to be what God requires of us. We all fall short of God's standard for holiness. And it's why salvation is to be received by grace alone, through faith alone, as a gift from God. You see, God doesn't find us and brush off a little bit of imperfection and blemishes and call us saved. He raises us from the dead and he makes us new creatures. If you're here this morning and you've you've always thought that being a Christian is a matter of just being a good person and God will honor that and think it's good enough to get into heaven... Let me just ask you one question, the question that haunted Martin Luther. How can you ever know it's enough? When you get to your end of your life on your deathbed, how will you ever know that it's enough? God does not save good people trying to do their best. God saves sinners rebelling against him and spitting upon his commandments. We need someone else who is free from the original sin of Adam to live the life of perfect obedience to the God's law that we could not, to die the death that we deserve, to raise us to life so that we might have assurance that we are God's children and not children of wrath. And when that clicks for you in your own understanding that God saves sinners and not good people, the depth and the breadth and the height of God's mercy and love offered to us in his son becomes much, much larger than we ever thought before. We have a big God. 
How does sin enter the world through one man, Adam? Let's look at the second part of this first question. How does death enter the world then? Well, in response to Adam's treason, God condemns him to physical death and spiritual death. Did you know that this is the reason why we die? Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the consequence of sin. And Paul describes our fallen world in verse 14 with that bone-chilling phrase, death reigned. And death's reign began at the sentence of death given by God in Genesis 3.19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is a sentence handed down to us from our judge, God. He gave life as a gift, and it's his prerogative to take it away whenever he wills. 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. But you see, man was not supposed to die. Death is actually abnormal. It's an intrusion into how God designed the world. And, And we can become so used to it that we actually normalize it and begin to become numb to what it actually is. Death is not just our bodies breaking down because of natural causes. Aging and death are the curse of Adam infecting and taking over our bodies inch by inch until that sentence from Genesis 3.19 is finally passed on us and we return to the dust. Death is strange. One practical reason I think we can normalize and become numb to what death is is we just don't see it in our daily lives like other generations did. It's actually odd when you think about it that our most frequent interaction with death is through movies and TV shows. It wasn't until last year that I actually, for the first time, saw someone in the process of dying. Uh, Philip and I, we go to Armor Oaks down the road, a senior living community, and we do a Bible study. And we were unexpectedly called to the bedside of a 90-year-old woman who was dying And they called her Granny Gangster because she lived a hard life and she was kind of hard. And she actually preferred that nickname. She wanted people to call her Granny Gangster. So Philip and I go in there to Granny Gangster laying there. And what struck me in this encounter was the real life process of dying. Like, you know, Philip's here just like pouring out gospel truths and resurrection from John 11 And he pauses, and the first words out of Granny Gangster's mouth are, can you get me more juice? I I remember the impression that left on me because I I knew that breathing becomes difficult when you're dying. But I'd never heard the wheezing, raspy breath of someone dying. I I knew that you become weak when you die, but I didn't know you couldn't grab your own juice. And all of a sudden, in that moment, the theology books that I've read and studied put on flesh and blood. And the realness of Adam's curse was before my eyes. Death is strange. You know, here's a woman dying, and a few streets over, I'll leave and go make dinner and just enjoy my evening. You see, Adam's curse is not abstract. Death isn't a theology topic that's interesting to poke at. It's real 
Death is real and it devastates families. And my first thought leaving her bedside was that life is not a game that we play. You know, we don't just dress up on Sunday morning and make the scenic drive underneath the grand oak trees of Westmire Boulevard and and enter into our beautiful, stately 93-year-old building with our roastery coffees in hand and play at the Christian life. Even while we live, whether you're in the prime of youth or in the latter stages of aging, we are all in the process of dying. We, we don't have unlimited days. And the day will come eventually when the curse will catch up with you. And you, like all those who have gone before you, will return to the dust. And in a matter of just a few generations, no one will remember that you lived. Young people... Don't let the fact that more years appear to separate you from death and old age think that death is a far-off problem. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And living in a world of tragedy, you never know when that day will come for you. It, It could be 60 years from now. It could be six hours from now. Are you right with God? why the famous Puritan preacher said that I preach as a dying man to dying men and women. What we do here at Warnell Road matters. And when eternal things are not shoved to the side in your thinking, but they receive their proper weight, the need of the gospel and the need to make yourself right with God becomes all the more important. It's why when people draw closer to death at the end of their life, that they then finally start to take account of whether they're right with the Lord. But don't wait till that day. Make yourself right with him now by receiving his gift of eternal life, by repenting and believing in the gospel that Christ has done all for you so that when that day does come, When your body is wasting away, you will have decades of the Lord's promises at your back. And you will enter into death with a smile rather than a wince. Because you know that for the Christian, death is gain. And you go to meet your father and not your judge. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And death doesn't reign over the one who has life in Jesus. The fangs of the curse have been removed for the Christian. All death can do is just pat you on the head and send you your way to eternal glory and happiness with the Lord. And only God could bring sweetness out of something so bitter. Pray the dangerous prayer of Jonathan Edwards when he says, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I say dangerous because when you pray that prayer, all of a sudden, your breaths are measured. Your days are counted. And when you walk in Walmart getting groceries or you're filling up gas in your tank, you realize that every single person passing you has an eternal soul where they will be with the Lord or apart from him forever. I wonder how it might change the way we live and prioritize things as individuals and as a church if we could receive some special pair of glasses from God where they show us whenever somebody walks by, they're marked heaven or hell. 
Sin is the biggest problem of humanity because it's the problem from which all other problems spring. I don't speak of the problem lightly. I hope that comes across. I I don't speak of it as if it's uh, your problem and not mine. I don't speak of it because I just really want to be a fire and brimstone kind of preacher. Uh, In fact, I feel even now like the temptation to soften my language and just take the foot off the gas a little bit. But brothers and sisters, the reason why I'm trying to speak with clarity on such matters is because you cannot know God's salvation without knowing what you're saved from. There is no freedom if you are not once enslaved. There's no gospel without any law. There's no atonement and forgiveness without sin and condemnation. And when churches begin to slip and uh, lose the gospel, the first thing to often go is the doctrine of sin. Because it's, it's not that pretty to talk about. And the, the, the pattern of a church slipping can often be seen in the affirmation that deep down you're actually a good person. Coupled with an abundance of like religious platitudes and, and vague language about love that replaces biblically specific, redemptive, pointed language. Alistair Begg helpfully puts it like this, to offer a man a God who does everything in general and nothing in particular, that kind of gospel is absolutely hopeless. Even among churches like ours where the gospel is proclaimed and cherished, uh, one of the weaknesses that can subtly creep into our understanding of the gospel is not fully understanding what we're saved from. And if we don't present the gospel in all its color, we can actually short the glory due to God in the salvation of sinners. Because sin and and death are what establish the gravity of the cross. Each swing of the hammer that drove the nails into our Lord's flesh Every thorn that pierced his head, every tremble in his soul, every drop of blood in the garden were done so because of your sin and my sin. And we see with much more clarity what we have in Christ by considering what we have lost in Adam. And if we don't grasp the depths of the horrors of sin and depravity, we will never soar to the heights of the free and everlasting blessedness offered to us in the gospel. Leverage Adam's curse to like slingshot you into higher gospel orbit. So how did sin and death enter the world? Question one, answer, sin entered through one man's transgression and death entered as a consequence of that man's sin. Let's move to our second question. How do we know that sin spreads to all mankind? How do we know? Well, Paul proves what he said in verse 12 with verses 13 and 14. Look there with me for a moment. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. 
Okay, so the logic essentially goes like this. Sin and death spread to all mankind because one man sinned. And the evidence that you can know that that is true, Paul's saying, is that death reigns. No matter who you are or where you live or what your skin color is, you will die. And that proves that sin has spread to all mankind. It's one of the reasons why we must affirm that Adam and Eve are a real living couple that all humanity descends from. Because if not, how does death spread to all mankind? If you see that little line at the end of verse 12, right before verse 13, that M dash, that's actually there because Paul breaks off his sentence. I don't know if you noticed this. And leaves it incomplete, actually. It's as if he's writing and his pen stops and he anticipates an objection from the Jews about what he's just said. And so he stops and turns to that objection. And I believe that understanding that objection actually holds the key to unlocking some of these really difficult verses. So let's, for a moment, get in the mindset of the Jews. This is probably the steepest theological climbing we'll do all day, so stay with me. I think you can do it. Uh, the best I can tell is the objection from the Jews runs something like this. Okay, during the window of human history, after Adam, but before Moses, so basically the book of Genesis... How can those people be held accountable for their sin if the Mosaic law didn't exist yet to clearly point out what sin is and what it is not? If there's no written law from God, then how can I be charged with sin? So the Jews are saying there must have not been sin in the world before Moses, right, Paul? I mean, after Adam and before Moses, how can you sin if there's no law to count it as sin? But Paul immediately counters with, no, 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 there indeed was sin before the law was given. How do you know? Because death still came to every single person who ever lived in that time period. Death reigned, and death is the consequence of sin. Okay, tracking. So, so then what do we do with this phrase, but sin is not counted where there is no law? Is Paul really saying there, that people living before Moses were not held accountable for sins like we are. I don't think so. If it meant that, he would not only be going back on what he said in verse 12, but the entire book of Genesis would make no sense because God clearly punishes the wicked for their sins. Most obviously, he floods the entire world for wickedness in Genesis 6, and that appears to be counting sins. So, if God still counted sins back then, and we affirm that sin is not counted where there is no law, then there must have been some kind of law given to mankind before Moses that all men are held accountable to and everywhere have a sense of. You see, that's where the Jews went wrong in their objection. Moses' law is reflecting and expanding upon an older natural law given to Adam in the garden that he was to obey as article three of our statement of faith affirms. And that law given to Adam is passed down to this very day to all his descendants in their consciences. Paul argues as much in, in Romans chapter one and two, when he says that all mankind, even those without knowledge of the scriptures have a sense that God exists and what he requires of them. Yet Paul says they push it down and ignore it to live like they want to. So this natural law 
then, is what governs all sense of morality in the world, even among those who do not know Christ. And it will be the law that God will judge humanity by. Because, you see, the Mosaic law only condemns those under the Mosaic covenant, which is now obsolete. So the question becomes, how and by what law and by what covenant will God judge all humanity by if it's not Adam? Are you still with me? It's pretty steep, but I I think we can get there. Time permits me to unpack this further, but, but what does it all mean for us, okay? What does it all mean? It means that the law is powerless to save because it only serves to further our condemnation and prolong the reign of death by pointing out more sins that we're guilty of that we didn't know of previously. It's why we needed a savior to come and be born as a man under the law so that he might redeem us from the law by obeying it perfectly and dying to satisfy its penalty. You see, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, is the Messiah passing the test that Adam failed so that we might be free. And through him, the grasp of death's reign is now released and we can belong to another king and another kingdom. So the next question and the final question naturally for Paul is who will save us from death's reign? Who will save us from humanity's biggest problem and undo the curse of Adam? Look at verse 14, the the last half of it. It's the one who was to come and who Adam was a type of, the Lord Jesus, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, Adam foreshadowed and pictured a man who would come after him as the seed of the woman, who would stand as the head and the representative of mankind before God and be tested. But unlike Adam, he would not fall Nor could he, but he would stand. He would not condemn the world, but would set it free. And this is the good news of the gospel. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were looking for who this Adam-like figure might be. If you read your Old Testament's predictions and, and prophecies fill the Old Testament, giving us more and more clarity as the years go by and as the covenants go by about the long-awaited-for Messiah, a man who would bring rest to all creation's burdens, who would come in the likeness of sinful flesh, like we read in Hebrews 2, though without sin, and give himself as a sacrifice to God to make peace where there formerly was hostility. A man who would not eat of the tree, but would be nailed to it for our salvation. A man who death could not reign over because he has the power of life within himself. It's why the grave was powerless to keep him down when on the third day he proved himself to be both Lord and Christ and rose for our justification. Death has been put to death in the death of Christ. Amen. He, Jesus, would be the answer to all our longings, the solution to all our deepest problems. He'd be the medicine to our sickness, the balm to our wounds. He would be, if you back up into Romans chapter 4, he would be the blessing of Abraham to the nations. And he actually remakes humanity in his own image. 
The true and better Adam would reverse the fall of the world and announce the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God where sin is no more and life now reigns in righteousness. When you read the gospels and Jesus goes from town healing people and healing people here and speaking life to them here, what you see is a actual reversal of Adam. It's like putting the tape and like watching it backwards. A man who by a single act of obedience would bring sinners back to God and make them saints once again. I think this is one of the reasons why when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, he's so overcome and he weeps. And the word for weeping there is actually strange. It's not like, I'm sad my friend Lazarus died. He's like angry, very angry at what he's seeing because what he's seeing is death. The very thing that he came to destroy out of the abundance of his own life. So he weeps and says, where's the man? And he goes forth and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb to show that he has the power of life. And Lazarus couldn't have said, no, thanks, Jesus. I want to be dead. He rose. And one of the things I love about the Lazarus story is that he has to say, Lazarus, come forth, lest all the dead in all the world rise. That's the kind of power that the new Adam has. He makes us saints once again by the abundance and overflow of his life. Though in Adam we fall, in Christ we rise. And all that we've lost in Adam is restored in Christ and much more. All your burdens, all your hurts, all your regrets and your sins are only put to rest in Christ. So come to him. He calls out to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever comes to him and takes hold of of the promise that he will never cast them out, will have life forever. Jesus is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. He is the only answer to our world's biggest problem. And to this answer and to this wonderful salvation, we turn to more fully next week. Let's pray. Father, if you had not sent your son, where would we be? We would be dead in our sins. Let the proper weight of that fall on us, Lord. Stamp eternity on our eyeballs that when we talk about the gospel, we're not just speaking in second nature. We are standing amazed in the surprise and wonder of the good news that you release sinners from captivity. That you come and make us worthy to be called your sons and your daughters. Lord, let this truth seep into our hearts and our understanding. May it let us rejoice and carry us through this week of burdens, sadnesses, and sorrows, and joys. And Lord, even now as we come to your table, help us to remember what you've done. Help us to remember where we were when we were fallen in our sin. 
And may the table even now be an encouragement to those who are outside of Christ to come to him. Submit their life to the wonderful reign of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for all this and much, much more. In Jesus' name, amen.